Turn your copy of God's Word to the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8, for a sermon about Simon the Sorcerer. Everything, it seems, has its price. We live in such a materialistic society that indeed we think that we can grasp, gain, or class anything if we simply have enough money. That in the end, while some things might be posted not for sale, everything in reality eventually has a price at which it can truly be had. But that's not altogether true, is it? There are some things that simply cannot be bought. I've, I've kind of made a list in my mind. You cannot pay someone to exercise for you. You can do it. Do you realize that? The rich, perhaps, can purchase better health care, but they cannot purchase better health. Can you imagine a world in which the rich could pay someone, hey, I need to jog four miles today. Here's 80 bucks. Go jog four miles for me. And then the physiological benefits are transferred to the rich person who made the transaction. I might sign up for that line of work. That would be great work. You just work out for a living. Or perhaps you could pay me to go to the gym and push the poundage and you'd experience the growth and the gains in your, not my, macho muscles. But it doesn't work like that. Health is something that really cannot be purchased. Health care, yes, but vigor and exercise, those things that I, I, we must, I must, you must absolutely do for ourselves. Might hire a trainer, might hire a coach to push us through, but we, in the end, have to pick up the pounds ourselves if it's our biceps that we want to be strengthened. Maybe there's something in your life, something that you say is not for sale, but if I got the price high enough, you might be willing to sell it. Like your automobile, you say, no, I, you love your car and it's not for sale. How about four times at market value? Are you in? Will you give me your deed today? How about a million dollars? Anybody got a card here you would not sell to me for a million dollars? I thought so. Your car is for sale. But perhaps there is something in your life, something so sentimental they can't really be purchased. Maybe it's your grandmother or your grandfather's Bible. Maybe you would say, Pastor, I don't care the price. My grandmother's Bible is not for sale. Or maybe it's the old home place which you inherited. There's generation after generation of history there, and you would not for any amount sell the old home place. Some of you saying, you know, Grandma's Bible's special, but if the check got big enough, or, or the old home place, you know, if the check got big enough, I'll keep going. How about your children? Are your children for sale? <laughs> Anybody sell their children for a million dollars? Okay, how about a billion? If I came up with a billion dollars, would you sell little Susie? Well, there was a day I would have rented mine out to you for about three weeks. I want them back eventually, but real cheap for three weeks you could have them. Uh, maybe some of you feel like that. Ultimately, we might rent our children out for about three weeks. That's called summer camp. Rent our children out for about three weeks, but ultimately we probably wouldn't sell them. Some things in life cannot be purchased. 
There is no prize for which they can be had. Now, that's frustrating to people who are used to writing the check and always getting their way with money. And there is a real irony, in fact, that the greatest things in life cannot be purchased. True friendship. Can you buy a true friend? You might gather some acquaintances around you like the prodigal son when you've got a lot of money to party, but can you get a true friend? Will the friend be there when the money's gone? Well, the prodigal son found they are not. How about a loving relationship? Can you buy love for a prize? Not real love. You can't. A wonderful relationship with our children, a healthy relationship with our families, our, our parents, our friends, relationships, healthy relationships cannot, cannot be purchased for a prize. But most importantly, in our passage today, what we will discover this morning is that the holy cannot be had for money. That which is of God cannot be purchased for a price. It's an odd little story about Philip and the story of Simon the sorcerer. And Simon discovers, as we will discover, that a relationship with God, that spiritual gifts cannot be purchased for money. They are indeed some who try to buy the power of God. There's some who try to peddle that which is spiritual or holy. There were some in antiquity who did that. There's some today who try to do that. Turn back to Acts chapter 1. The book of Acts chapter 1 should be easy to find if you're already there in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is the programmatic passage. This is the outline for the Acts of the Apostles. But you, Jesus speaking to his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea, now I want you to notice the next one, and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the remotest parts of the earth. Okay, turn again now to Acts chapter 8. This is actually the outline of how the movement of the gospel goes in the Acts of the Apostles. In the early chapters of the book of Acts, we have the evangelism taking place, the preaching of the gospel around Jerusalem and Judea. And now that we get to Acts chapter 8, we go to the next stage that Jesus gave us, that is Samaria, and we end the book with the Apostle Paul in Rome, imprisoned, uh, the remotest part of the empire. He's right there in Rome. Jerusalem, Judea, today Samaria, and the book ends with Paul in the capital of the empire. Today in chapter 8, we have the story of Philip. Now, Philip is not one of the twelve. Philip is not like James or, or John. It's, it's, it's a different here. It's not like Andrew. This, is, this particular Philip is a deacon. He comes to us from the book of Acts, but he's not one of the 12. He is one of the seven, one of the seven deacons who decide to help take care of the widows and the orphans so the apostles, that is the 12, could study and preach the word of God. Now in Acts chapter 6 verse 5, 
the finding of these deacons found approval with the whole congregation. And in Acts 6, 5, we read, they chose Stephen and they chose, here's our character, Philip. So there in, in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, we're introduced to Philip. He is a second-generation believer. He's a Greek. He's going to help take care of the Grecian widows. And then in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who's been chosen as a deacon, stands firm in his faith, and he is stoned. And then by the time we get to Acts chapter 8, our passage today, notice chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And Saul, verse 3, began ravaging the church, entering the house after house, and dragging men and women. He would put them in prison. And look at verse 4. Therefore, those who'd been scattered went about preaching the word. So now we begin with the persecution of the church. Stephen is stoned. Paul begins his campaign of arresting believers and throwing them in jail. And as they go, as they run, as they flee the persecution in Jerusalem, the apostles stay in Jerusalem. The rest of the disciples flee. And Philip is one of those that is fleeing. And as they go, they preach the gospel. Well, it's called different things, what they preach. Look at verse 4. And those scattered went about preaching the word. As they went, fleeing persecution, they preached the word. In verse 5, it says, they were preaching or proclaiming Christ. In verse 12, it, it calls something else, the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. So we have no uncertainty about what it is, the message that they carry as they're dispersed, fleeing persecution. They're preaching the word. They're preaching the Christ. They're preaching the message of the kingdom that is found in the person of Jesus. Now, we know what Philip's preaching. He's preaching the apostle's theology. He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching what baptism preached this morning, that if we die with Christ, we also rise with Christ. They were called to repentance and salvation through the special act of God on Calvary. And now he goes to Samaria. Now, if you know anything about the Samaritans, you know they're not best friends with the Jews. It's a long history of hate, and they're half-breeds or half-Jews, you might say, and there's some animosity there. You remember in John's gospel, in John chapter 4, do you remember when Jesus is going to make his way, and he goes right through Samaria, and the disciples object. There's a straighter line between Galilee and Jerusalem, or Jerusalem and Galilee. It's not going through, going through Samaria. is a straight line. Most Jews went around, but Jesus went straight through Samaria, and he speaks to the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, and they are shocked. She says, you, a Jew, speak to me, a Samaritan. Now, there he is. He's right there in disputed territory with the Samaritans, and Philip begins to perform signs and miracles. Often in the Acts of the Apostles, these miracles, when the demons are exercised, when the lame begin to leap, it's called a semion. It's called a sign. A sign points to something other than itself. The park is this way, or there's a curve in the road. The sign isn't the curve. It points to the curve. The acts of casting out demons and healing the sick aren't really the gospel in itself. They are signs of the power of the gospel. And Philip is doing these signs. Look at verse 7. 
those who had unclean spirits. The spirits were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed, the lame, were healed. In verse 8, therefore, there was much rejoicing in that city. Now, the narrative gets interesting in verse 9. Now, there was a certain man in the city named Simon. Here comes our interesting character, the character of Simon. He was formerly practicing magic in the city. You see what it was? Simon had a bag of tricks, and he had astonished all the people. He'd go around, he'd do a trick, they couldn't figure it out, and when they were getting onto that trick, he'd come up with another trick, and they thought he was great and powerful. They thought his magic was a sign of the power of God, and he was quite popular in the city. Simon the Magos, Simon the Magician, a certain man named Simon. He was formerly practicing magic in the city, astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God, verse 11. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time, a long time, he had astonished them with his magic. Now, there are three things that describe Simon's religion. First of all, Simon Magos was about being great. He was about being powerful. Look at verse 9. He was claiming to be someone great. Then verse 10, they called him the great power of God. Simon's religion was about claiming greatness and showing power. Now, there's a second thing about his religion. It was a religion of attention, verse 10. They were giving attention to him. Or in verse 11, they were giving attention to him. Great is mentioned twice. Attention is mentioned twice. His is a religion of power. It is a religion of gaining people's attention. There's a third thing that describes his religion. That was he astonished people. He amazed people. Look at verse 9. He was astonishing the people of Samaria. Or verse 11, they were astonished by his magic arts. Power, attention, astonishment. That was the religion of Simon the magician. Now Philip, one of the seven, a second generation believer, is preaching the Christ and performing the signs. The demons are leaving, being cast out. The lame are leaping. And Simon looks in his bag of tricks and says, that's better than what I can do. I can't cast out demons. I don't have anything in my bag, my magic bag that'll do that. I don't have any way to make the lame leap. I don't, I don't have that trick. Wonder where Philip, wonder where he learned that trick. To him, the gospel was another set of tricks that he would like to acquire. You notice in the context, verse 12, but... They were watching Simon. They were astonished by his tricks. They called him the great. They gave him attention, but, but they believed Philip's preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, and they were baptized. Who was baptized? Both the women and the men. 
They were giving attention to Simon as long as he was the best show in town, but casting out demons and causing the lame to leap seemed to be more powerful than even what Simon Magos could do. So the but, the people began to follow Philip, and they are baptized. And interestingly enough, the text tells us in verse 13, and even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and he observed the signs. And now notice the end of verse 13. Simon is what? He's amazed. The one that before amazed the crowds, now he's amazed. Now he sees what it's like to see someone do something with a power that you can't figure out. Now when it says Simon believed... Use a really small B on his belief, would you? Use a really small B. Don't, it's not capital to believe. It's, it's kind of a small belief. He, he, he thought they had power to do something, but he himself, though he was, said he believed and said he was baptized, he was just following another bag of baloney. At least he thought. It's monumental now. Following the paradigm of Acts, it's someone who's gone to Samaria. For Jesus has said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You shall be in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the remotest part of the earth. And now it's happened. Philip preaches the word in Samaria, and both the men and the women are baptized because they believe with a big B, and Simon believes with a little, little B. God was doing the miraculous among the much maligned Samaritans. Now the spotlight shifts. First we had Philip in the spotlight. First we had Simon in the spotlight. Then we had Philip in the spotlight. But now there's two more characters going to come across the stage. That is Peter and John. The apostles in Jerusalem have heard that indeed the gospel is being preached all the way to the half-breed Samaritans. And so they go and check it out. Now, I want you to notice something interesting in this story. As you read Acts, the Spirit becomes, the Holy Spirit comes upon people at different stages. For us, it's normative. It happens when one professes Christ. And that is normative for Acts, but it's not always the case in Acts. Sometimes it comes when they say yes to Jesus. Sometimes it comes when they experience water baptism. And sometimes it comes later, like at Pentecost or here. It comes, Peter and John. Peter and John come from Jerusalem. They want to check it out. Could it possibly be that these awful Samaritans have actually believed in the Messiah of the Jews? And so they pray. They lay hands on them. And when they pray and they lay hands on them, indeed, they receive the Spirit. Look at verse 15. When they came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon them, and they simply been baptized in the name of Jesus. They began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on the hands of the apostles, and he offered them money. So sometimes in Acts, the Spirit comes at odd times, and in this case, it comes that those pillars of the Jerusalem church, Peter and John, can see that even Samaritans, just like it's going to happen to Gentiles in chapter 10, when the Spirit comes upon the family of Cornelius, 
But God wanted Peter and John to see that when they prayed, yes, the Holy Spirit of God, the God of the Jews, came upon the Samaritans. And so Peter and John could not deny it, for they themselves had seen it with their own eyes. But Simon was watching. And Simon said, that's the best trick I've ever seen. Do you lay your hands on somebody and you pray and they get the power of God? That's a marvelous trick, they thought to themselves. Simon says, I've got to have that trick. I need to be able to do that. Notice what he says, verse 19. Give me this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He is trying to purchase the holy. He's trying to peddle that which is sacred. Hey, I got some money. Yeah, I bet he had a lot of money from his magic shows. Let me give you a little money, and like one magician to another, you sell me that trick. Now, I'm going to give you a less than dainty translation of what Peter says, because the translation that you're given is cleaned all up. What Peter says is, to hell with you and your silver. That's a literal translation of what he says. To hell with you and your silver. Nicely translate here, may your silver perish with you. <laughs> it kind of loses it there, doesn't it? Somewhere in the translation. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You came, you acted like you believed, you were baptized, and you thought that you could purchase that which was holy, that you could purchase the gifts of God, the Holy Spirit. With money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I can see that you are in gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. And Simon said, Pray the Lord, pray for me yourselves, that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Interesting passage here in verse 21. What Simon did betrayed who he really was in his dark heart. God's all-searching, all-knowing eyes looks beyond what we want others to believe, and God can actually see what's in our heart. Simon, you've got a rotten heart. Now I see what you're about. You thought did you really think that you could write us a check and receive the gift and the power of God? Simon had a rotten heart. His religion of power and attention and astonishment gathered together in his purse. He wanted to purchase and peddle that which is divine and holy. Peter is so shocked by what he hears in verse 20 that he gives him the hard translation, the hard statement. And Simon says, he realized what he's done. Pray for me, pray for me. I'll, I'll pray, but God's not going to hear me. Peter, you pray for me that what you have said will not come true. There, there, there are those today, of course, who blatantly peddle what's holy you can buy 
water from the Jordan River. Some of them claiming right where John baptized Jesus, the very spot. Now, they're not very good archaeologists. They think they know the very, very spot. But they got it in the bottle for you. They can sell it to you. Or there's the full gospel ministry of Sister Marilyn. She's a prophetess and evangelist, lives in North Carolina. She can cure you of cancer tumors, sickle cell anemia, or AIDS for a price of $10. All of that will go away. If you mail a check to 141 Ebenezer Road, Kings Mountain, North Carolina, 2808. $10 a pop, she's selling what's holy. Now, you and I are repulsed at Simon, we're repulsed at Sister Marilyn or those who sell the holy waters in the bottles, but the reality is we have to look at our own hearts too. Do we put a fish in the phone book by our business because we think somebody will see that and say, hey, that'll bring more business to me if I put the fish there. Do we join a church to make business and establish business relationships? Or are we here for the pure purpose of worshiping, worshiping God? Are we in church seeking offices or power or attention? Are we trying to astonish people? Do I want them to say Howie the Great? Do you want them to say Francis the Fantastic? Why are we here? Why have we come? When Simon saw God and when Simon saw church, he was a marketing master. He began subtly in his mind and not so subtly with his mouth to be impressed by the commercial possibilities of the Christ. There it is. Are you and I looking past commercial possibilities of the Christ to the true transforming power of God's Spirit? Is our heart right with God? penetrating gaze of a holy and righteous God knows all, sees all, judges all, and he looks past what we do and say to the purpose of our heart. In fact, Simon's sin has been called simony by the church. When someone's guilty of simony, they're trying to make money with the holy. What we see this morning is the gospel is a great equalizer. You can't buy a relationship with God any more than you can buy exercise. You can't pay anybody else to do your praying for you. You can come here and pray with us, and corporate prayer is important, but we can't do your, your prayer every day. You can give money to missions, but God has divine appointments for you, for you to share the gospel, for you to invite someone to church to be among his people. You can't pay anybody to do that. I can't do your witnessing for you. You see, it is you and I who must hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's true religion. That is you or I, we must pursue the things of God and love God with all of our might, our soul, our heart, and our body. Simon goes down as, I don't know the end. I, I hope God forgave him and he got it worked out and got a great heart and had was a great evangelist for the church, but, but, but we don't know. Simon, Simon came to church for all the wrong reasons. What about us? Do we come to glorify him, to encourage our brothers and sisters, or is there something we're trying to market? Let us pray. Oh, God, help us to hear this word and to be warned the church is not a marketplace. Jesus turned over the tables. 
The church is a place where God sees and knows our hearts. And may all of us be here in the right way for the right reasons to worship a God who creates and saves and sustains. And in his name we pray, amen.